This evening's reading is from Isaiah chapter 6, so please pick up your Bibles and turn to page 690 for Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And uh, let me pray uh, for us. Holy is the Lord Almighty. Father, we thank you for what we've sung, and we thank you for what we've read, and we pray and ask that you will open our eyes tonight, open the eyes of our hearts to see something more of who you really are and may we respond in the way you want us to. We ask for your mercy, we ask for your spirit to soften our hearts to you tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the question for you as we start, do you like history? Um, to confess, I quite like uh, reading uh, history. Uh, but if you don't, um, I'm very willing to concede that an awful lot of history is a little bit uh, boring, uh, isn't it? You know, sort of remembering dates or 
sort of trends, social or economic history, those kind of things are a bit boring. But it seems to me that uh, throughout history there are nevertheless some times or moments of intense importance, sort of turning points. Uh, you know, the rest of the time things bubble along, but sometimes something really significant uh, happens. I was given a book uh, about uh, Winston Churchill for uh, Christmas by one of my little sisters. And um, in that book, it, it recounts something of what happened in the summer of 1940. And I realised that uh, this was a time of immense significance, a real turning point uh, in history. In the war, uh, Norway and France had surrendered. Britain was the only free country left. Uh, and we were over a barrel. We were really, uh, you know, at the bottom, really. Uh, most people thought it was time to surrender. Uh, to cut a deal uh, with Hitler in order to avoid a massacre. But into the breach stepped this one man, Winston Churchill, a, you know, a colourful, mixed character. But yet, that summer, he was the only man who had the guts to stand and lead, uh, and by his voice, you know, rallied a nation uh, to uh, turn from the brink of defeat. Uh, and of course, that summer was the key time, uh, you know, when things turned around uh, and ultimately the war uh, was won because of that key few months in the summer of 1940. Well, history does have these occasional times uh, when something really crucial uh, happens. But it's not just sort of grand history that has these times, but it's the history of individual lives. Um, so often our lives go along, bumble along, but there are occasional moments when something really significant happens, uh, when life is turned upside down uh, and the course is set uh, in a new way. Clive was reminding us this morning of uh, a chap called uh, Jonathan, a Chinese guy who was with us for two years. And during these two years here in this country, before he went back, um, his life was turned upside down as he encountered Christ through uh, the witness, wonderfully, of St Mary's. Uh, and he wrote to us, let me quote uh, from an email that he sent uh, to, to me, and um, just different words from what Clive quoted this morning, but nevertheless, great words. He said, I really miss you and friends at St. Mary's, and I shall thank you very much to lead me to the Christian world. Moreover, baptising me and bringing me a new life. I feel my attitude to life has changed a lot. I could keep happy in an unsuitable life circumstance. I could forgive others and not hate when I think when I get unfair treatment. And I've learned to give thanks to the Lord each time when he saves me from some troubles. What amazing things. Well, it's uh, uh, not quite perfect English, but it's, it's, it's an amazing little testimony of a time in his life when things were turned upside down. And many of us here, I expect and hope, have, can look back to a period of time or a moment when things were turned on their heads by an encounter with Jesus Christ. I wonder, has that happened yet for you? Well, tonight's passage in Isaiah is a key turning point, both in history, in Israel's history, and also in the personal history of Isaiah. Last time, uh, last week, as we met, we started to think uh, about Israel's story up to this point. Uh, it's 740 BC, uh, Israel has been called by God, 
They were rescued from Egypt, they were given a land, they were given God's good law. But in spite of all of these things and God's wonderful kindness to them over many years, they didn't bear good fruit, only bad fruit. God poured goodness into them, uh, but they only yield, yielded bad. And we saw that after all God's patience, uh, they were deserving of judgment. And the question was, what, what is he going to do with them? Is his judgment going to fall? And if judgment falls on Israel, does it mean God's plans to save the world uh, are faltering, uh, are failing? Well, tonight, into this you know, desperate situation, we see God's response. It's to raise up a spokesman to deliver a message to them at this crucial turning point uh, in Israel's history. And as we see Isaiah, the voice of the Lord to the nation, we also see Isaiah, an individual who encounters God in a profound way that changed him forever. Well, I've just got two uh, points uh, from tonight's uh, passage, uh, and here they are. The first is this. Isaiah sees a life-changing vision of God, and second, Isaiah receives a history-changing commission from God. So first, let's look at the life-changing vision uh, that Isaiah sees. This is verses 1 uh, to 7. We read verse 1 again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Well, he tells us the year this happened, so we can pinpoint it. Uh, it's 740 BC, pretty much, when King Uzziah died. He'd been reigning for about 40 years. They were prosperous years for the kingdom of Judah. Economically, things were well. Uh, throughout this time, they'd been free from foreign oppression. But by the end of his reign, things are not looking so good. The last few years, he had been cut off from the people, uh, suffering with leprosy because of his sins. And the Assyrian Empire is on the rise uh, and they are going about conquering uh, and killing. It's a moment of great uncertainty in Judah's history. It always was in the ancient world when there was a change of monarch, uh, but particularly so uh, at this time. When Queen Elizabeth uh, dies, uh, I'm imagining that it will be a particular moment of disorientation for us psychologically. Um, but how much more in Isaiah's day when the monarch uh, had absolute uh, and real power. But in this time of uncertainty, Isaiah sees a vision of someone sitting on a throne. God is sitting uh, on a throne. Let's try and picture uh, the scene uh, that he sees. Uh, it's a vision that takes place in the temple, and that is significant because the temple is the place where God dwelt with his people. It's the place on earth uh, where heaven uh, touched earth, if you like. And Isaiah is standing perhaps in the doorway, uh, looking in. And in his vision, uh, it's like the curtains, that the veils uh, have been peeled back. And at the centre, uh, where the Ark of the Covenant would have been, he sees a throne. Well, what are the features uh, of this throne and this vision? Well, firstly, I think we can see it is an awesome vision, isn't it? It's an awesome vision. Uh, there's a throne high 
and exalted. It speaks of God's sovereignty, his high sovereignty. He really is in charge uh, of things, of history. He's seated. Uh, that, uh, of course, means he's ruling. He's uh, in charge. He's got this great kingly robe. There's attendants uh, whose voices cause the place to shake. Uh, and there's smoke that fills the room. It's an awesome sight. Now, of course, it cannot be a vision of the absolute essence of God. The Bible describes God as spirit. Uh, He's not visible uh, to human eyes in this life. And yet, Isaiah is granted a vision of the presence of God that he can see. And the features of his vision actually fit with the fact that he can't really fully see God as a human being. The hem of his robe fills the temple as with many of these visions of God in the Old Testament, typically you could only kind of see up to his feet. Think of the ones where there's a sort of sea of crystal uh, under his feet, and you can't kind of really see uh, above that. Well, that's something of what Isaiah gets. He can kind of just about see the bottom uh, of God. And then, of course, uh, the smoke fills the temple, obscuring uh, his vision. Nevertheless, what Isaiah sees is awesome. It is absolutely awesome. But the awesomeness of it, the power of this throne, is not the thing that impacts him most. It's not the power of God, but the goodness of God that is most amazing. Did you see that? Did you see that as we uh, read it along? Let's have a look at some of the other details. In verse 2, there are seraphs, The word literally means fiery ones. It's a description uh, of what they're like rather than a title. Fire in the Old Testament was symbolic of holiness. Remember Moses at the burning bush. God said, take your sandals off. You are standing on holy ground. And these seraphs, the way they behave shows that this is the true thing about God. With two wings they cover their faces. It's like they're unworthy to look at this holy God cover their faces but their ears are open to hear his commands to cover their feet perhaps that reflects the fact that they will only go where God commands them to go and with two wings they are flying uh, in readiness to move anywhere at his command and of course they're not seated they are standing in attendance to the one who is seated and in charge now the most important thing I think is what they are saying at verse 3. They were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the, the most important thing that God reveals about himself to Isaiah, that he is holy. Now, the Hebrew here is really interesting and significant. In Hebrew, uh, if you want to say something is superlative, you would repeat the adjective you know, twice. You repeat it. So if something is really, really good or the best thing, you would say it was good, good. But there's only one time in the whole of the Old Testament uh, where the word is repeated twice, where it's said three times, and that's here. Holy, holy, holy. It is God's way of saying that his holiness is, if you like, sort of ungrammatically, the holiest of the holiest. That is what it is saying. Isaiah, in fact, 
has a particular title that he calls God that's kind of unique, really. He calls him the Holy One of Israel. That's the thing that this vision most impacted on him. God is holy. And of course, it means we need to understand what is holiness. Well, we started to consider it last time. If you were here, we saw that uh, holiness in its essence uh, is what is distinctive about God uh, by contrast with us. It's what is what makes him God, what is distinctive about him. And we saw that the distinctive thing was his goodness, his absolute moral purity compared with us. He is the one being in the universe who is totally and utterly good. In our song, we also uh, caught a little bit of another connotation of the word holy, which is the word for sort of brightness. He is blazingly pure, if you like, white purity, blazingly good. And yet we can't see this with our eyes. God's holiness is his hidden glory. And yet in this vision, Isaiah sees and hears from the seraphs that this fills the whole earth. God is present everywhere. We can't see him, uh, but he is present in his perfect goodness. That's his glory, his perfect goodness. Well, we can't see uh, what Isaiah sees, but what he sees is the greatest truth in the universe. An all-present, totally good God reigns everywhere. And of course, what happens in the vision? The doors shake and smoke fills the place. And it's as if it's saying, God is so good uh, that we sinful people cannot come near. He's beyond, far beyond our uh, goodness in contrast. Well, this vision, I would suggest, is so different, isn't it, to how we tend to think about God in our culture. If we regard him at all, we kind of think he's a slightly old impotent old guy in the sky, a sort of Santa Claus uh, type figure who, you know, of course he'll forgive us, of course he'll let us into his heaven. Well, the vision in Isaiah is not at all that. He's not at all the almighty, but the almighty. And Isaiah's reaction, you know, just brings it home, doesn't it? Look at verse 5. His reaction to this good God is, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When he is in the presence of someone who is totally and utterly good, then his own sinfulness is absolutely clear. That's what always happens in the Bible when people uh, have an encounter with the living God. They realise their complete sinfulness. Think of Peter when he encountered Jesus and recognised that he was a sinful man, and he said, depart from me, I can't bear to be with you, you are too good. You see, as human beings, we we get this so wrong, don't we? We we compare ourselves, you know, to other people, we compare ourselves to one another, and as long as we do that, we're always going to find someone, aren't we, that's worse than us. We can always think of people who've done horrible things and think we're not like that. Think of the people that killed people in Paris last week, And we might think, well, I'm not like that. I'm not bad like that. But of course, we're comparing ourselves to the wrong people or the wrong person. When we compare ourselves to God, 
the one who truly is good, uh, then we see our own imperfection. When I started um, working in a hospital, I went to work in a, a lovely white shirt, uh, a lovely, crisp, pure white shirt. And then, of course, I was assigned uh, a hospital white coat, bleached, perfect white. And then I realised, of course, that my shirt wasn't really white at all. as uh, a sort of horrible, kind of slightly dingy, greyish, off-white colour. I saw its imperfection, uh, what it was really like. And it's like that when we come before God. You know, when we compare ourselves to others, we think, oh, I'm, I'm perfectly white. But then you come before God and you realise uh, that we are not at all, we are dirty. And Isaiah uh, sees uh, this reality. He sees, verse 5, that he is ruined. I am ruined. It's a really strong statement. He, like he recognises, you know, it's all over for him. And he sees that, you know, he's not that different from the rest of the people. Maybe up to this point he thought, I'm a prophet. I'm kind of more holy than everybody else. And now he realises that actually uh, he's just the same as everyone else. It's interesting, isn't it, that he mentions his lips. Uh, of course, a prophet's job is to speak. And he recognises uh, his sinful lips. He is ruined. There was a a very effective Christian uh, apologist of the last century called Francis Schaeffer, and he described human beings as, in our nature, a glorious ruin. It's a brilliant description. It recognises the fact that there's something glorious about human beings. We were made in God's image, and we're still capable of wonderful and glorious things. We're still capable of acts of genuine kindness, uh, genuine heroism uh, towards other people. And yet... We are ruined. There's not one part of our nature that isn't affected by our sin. And so when we come to God, we see that we are a ruin. Isaiah sees that truth all so clearly. And he knows by rights that his situation is worse than death. Ruined, eternal death is what he faces. So it's God's utter goodness that impacts Isaiah most that day. He knows he's ruined. And so as we think about God's big plan for Israel, well, what does it mean for Israel if their best prophet is ruined? Israel is ruined. They haven't lived as the holy people God called them to be. In God's plan to redeem the world, which started with Israel, well, it's looking like it's not going very well. It's looking like... The Israel stage of the plan isn't the answer. Perhaps the Israel stage of the plan is just telling us even more clearly how much we need God to save us, how much we need him to come himself to redeem the human race. Well, look what happens next in the vision, because we start to see just a glimpse of hope. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew with me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar, with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Well, the seraph is sent with a coal from the altar. And I think the altar is the key thing here. The altar in the temple was, of course, the place of atonement, the place where symbolically the people of Israel uh, could know sins forgiven. Uh, and conscience cleansed. The fire 
of God's wrath, burnt up the animal sacrificed in your place. That was the way the sacrificial system worked. You, an animal died in your place uh, for your forgiveness, for your atonement. And of course, in Isaiah's case here, his lips are touched. Yeah, the prophet's lips uh, that he recognised were unclean are now going to be cleansed. And we see a comprehensive dealing of his sin, I think. Uh, the word uh, that we have here translated as guilt, uh, maybe that's a bit of a, uh, a weak translation. It probably refers to the guilt that's caused by our inward uncleanness, our inward iniquity, as the older translations put it, the inner twisted nature that makes us guilty. It's taken away. And the sin, all the acts that he's done wrong, are atoned for, literally paid for. It's the language of a legal debt settled on Isaiah's behalf. It's all been dealt with through something that happened on the altar, a sacrifice on the altar, which of course points forward to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in our place. The Bible deals here in absolutes, not relatives. God is absolutely holy, 100%. We are absolutely ruined, 100%. And yet God provides an absolute solution to our guilt, 100%. That's at the heart of the Christian faith. The Old Testament sacrificial system was just a shadow. Uh, it wasn't really the thing that could deal with our sin. Only Jesus can do that through his death on the cross. Only he is a perfect substitute uh, for what we deserve. And if we trust him, then we too can know what Isaiah knew then. Sins paid for, guilt taken away. So many people, so many of us, carry around guilt, regrets, an unsettled conscience, maybe a fear that we've not really been forgiven. And yet, if we grasp this, this great news means that God can totally deal with our sin. Uh, both the past things we've done wrong, both our present guiltiness and even our future sins, complete removal and payment of sin, completely dealing with it. So if we've come to Christ, uh, we can have the freedom of not carrying it around uh, anymore. It is completely amazing uh, to know that it's all dealt with, like Isaiah knew uh, back then. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said these words, if we knew how bad the judgment was that we face, we'd die of fear. But if we knew how good the salvation is that we can have, we'd die of joy. It's so amazing to have our sins dealt with like this. Well, Isaiah has a life-changing vision from God. And we too, if we receive the gospel of Jesus, can know the same realities today. Well, second, Isaiah received a history-changing commission from God, a history-changing commission. No sooner has Isaiah received atonement for his own sins than he is commissioned to go and preach a message. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's no longer the seraphs that are speaking, but God himself. 
Isaiah's been forgiven, and now God speaks personally. And he's speaking as if you can imagine the kind of heavenly courtroom, uh, you know, the kind of king in his court. And he's, you know, asking, who's going to go for us? And amazingly, it's not an angel uh, that is sent, but a human being. And amazingly, I think Isaiah says, send me. Think about the other sort of Bible examples like this. When Moses uh, was called, he sort of said, if you like, here I am, send my brother. Or Jeremiah, it's as if he said, here I am, but send me later. So it is amazing that Isaiah says straight away, send me. And I think it's probably because he just grasped that God had dealt with his sins 100% and that therefore he could be someone who God could use. Had the freedom to know that because his sin's been dealt with, he can now go and be used to preach the message uh, of the good news. And at this point in the reading, I guess I think this is really exciting. If Isaiah's received God's redemption, then what a great ministry he's going to have to Israel, enabling others to receive this amazing redemption as well. And so the verses that follow, I think, are just an incredible shock, aren't they? They are really shocking, because verse 9 onwards says, it's not going to be like that for Isaiah. It is not going to be a happy job. Look look at these verses, They're, they're really shocking. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. I think these verses are hard in part because it doesn't tell us here what Isaiah's message is. And I think we have to kind of look at the whole of the book to see his message, a message of judgment on Israel, uh, and yet there is a message of hope for Israel beyond judgment and for the world. But the shock here is the effect of his message on his contemporaries. His message is not going to lead the people of Israel to come to their senses. They are not going to come to repentance and faith. They are not going to have the same experience that Isaiah has of knowing guilt and sins dealt with. Rather, his message is going to harden their hearts. And it's a, there's a sort of comprehensiveness about it, because in verse 9 it says, heart, ears, and then eyes. And then it repeats it in the opposite order, eyes, ears, and then heart. The result of his preaching is going to be that that Israel totally is unable to grasp and comprehend it. And it's not going to be because Isaiah is hard intellectually. We might sort of look at Isaiah in the next week and think, oh, Isaiah is hard. But actually, uh, I think his message is really that is really actually quite clear. In chapter 28 records an instance where people in his day mocked him for his simplistic message. The problem is not intellectual. The problem Israel will have with Isaiah is moral. A hardness of heart, which means they are unable to feel, to see, uh, and to hear the truth that he's got to preach. Well, these things, this is really important for us, because in the same way that Isaiah was given a commission to preach, the church has also been given a commission to go out and tell good news. Jesus sends us to all nations. And there are similarities between our experience and Isaiah's. 
And therefore, what Isaiah experiences is important for us to grasp. There is a general truth that wherever the good news is preached, it has two effects. It may soften hearts to God, lead to conviction of sin, like with Isaiah, lead to true repentance before God, and resulting in healing, as Isaiah puts it here, turning and being healed. But the hard truth for us is that the gospel can also harden hearts and seal people in their rebellion against God. I was reading earlier in the week an old uh, Bible commentary that says this, the same fire which melts wax can also harden clay. If we keep on hearing the gospel and keep on rejecting it, then we become more and more hard and stubborn uh, to it. And there comes a point when we're hardened, if you like, beyond the point of no return. We no longer want to hear the message and no longer can. And so hearing the good news about Jesus is both a great opportunity and also a great danger. The gospel either saves or it hardens. It's a sober truth. There's no neutral response to it. Uh, It does one or the other. This verse is hugely significant because it's quoted in each of the four Gospels. I'm not sure if any other sort of single Old Testament passage is quoted in every single one. I'm sure Clive can tell me one afterwards, uh, but I can't think of any others. It's also quoted in the Acts of the Apostles and in Romans, Paul's most significant letter. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus quotes this uh, when he's speaking about the effect of his parables. He speaks in parables in order to have a double effect. His parables work judgment on those who have hard hearts so that they may not understand and may not turn and be saved. And yet the parables are also a way of teaching so that those who have got soft hearts come to Jesus and ask for full understanding. And Paul quotes it in Acts and Romans to show how unbelieving Israel of his day is behaving in exactly the same way that Israel did in the days of Isaiah. It wasn't new, not something to be surprised about. And so this teaching is something that is not comfortable for us, and we may not be that familiar with it, but it's really, really important. It's vitally important to recognise that as we engage in the Great Commission of Jesus, the message that we have both saves and hardens. You know, we, we should not be surprised that that is the effect. That's what it does in God's purposes. The job of Isaiah, and our job as well, is to be faithful to the message, to tell others the message, to get on with it and do it. But the effect of the message is not something that we have any control over. Uh, we trust God. Uh, he is the one who is responsible for bringing about the results. Either it results in people remaining hard to him and hardening, or, uh, by God's amazing grace, saving uh, people. So that's a really important lesson for us uh, to take to heart. But also, as we talk about this way of responding to the gospel, it is, you know, I think, vital for me to ask you the question, how are you responding to the message 
of the gospel. Maybe you come and hear it week by week at St Mary's, study it in small groups, read it yourself. How are you responding to the message? The passage demands, doesn't it, that we take a hard look at ourselves and ask, am I being hardened? Am I becoming more callous, more indifferent? Or am I being softened and seeing its wonder uh, more and more over time? It is vital, isn't it? If, if there's any concern that I may be being hardened, you know, that, that I cry out to God for a response like Isaiah's, that I see again his holiness uh, and recognise uh, his grace, the hope of being saved. Well, what a difficult job Isaiah's got to preach this message, knowing that in his days it is going to be a hardening uh, ministry. When I first began to think about ordained ministry, I went to a meeting uh, and a vicar came to speak and his title was The Best Job in the World. And uh, he genuinely believed, and I believe it is a great job. Um, but he was also helpfully realistic about the challenges. But I wonder if Isaiah thought he had the best job uh, in the world, because it leads him to ask, you know, he sees how hard it is, and he looks in verse 11, how long, O Lord? And the answer it's just so hard isn't it until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken Isaiah's got to keep on delivering God's message until judgment fully comes until the people are so hardened in their rebellion against God that it is right and just for the judgment to finally fall what a commission uh, to have been given. This vision that he got, I am sure, was absolutely essential to keep him going in the hard days ahead. A total judgment is coming on Israel. And yet, verse 13, there's a glimmer of hope, isn't there? As we finish, let's have a look at verse 13 uh, before we feel overwhelmed. And though a tent remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. God's judgment is going to, if you like, cut everything back. All the bad plants, when we saw about the vine last week, the bad fruit, it's all going to be cut away, it's all going to be taken away. And yet something will remain. And in time, this holy seed uh, is going to grow forward um, beginning of Isaiah chapter 11 gives us some hope it says there a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse from his roots a branch will bear fruit the spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding of counsel of power of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and of course Jesse that's David's father it's talking about something that happened centuries later, one from the line of David, Jesus will come. He will be the hope, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. In him will be true forgiveness, and the life-changing power of the Spirit will come from him. Well, in terms of our big story uh, of the Old Testament, uh, we learn a lot about God. We learn a lot about his dealings with people, his salvation, saving Israel, his holiness, giving them the law, his way of atoning for sin. It's going to be through sacrifice. But Israel was just a little model of God's salvation, a partial kingdom 
that failed because of their sin and so God dismantled it in judgment. These days of Isaiah and following is a key turning point in Israel's history. Judgment is coming at the end of the Old Testament partial kingdom. Unlike Churchill, Isaiah's voice was not going to bring uh, rescue for the nation, but was going to bring defeat and judgment. But the judgment uh, that happened was going to pave the way for God to rebuild something far greater uh, through Christ, far deeper, far better uh, in Christ and him alone. And as we go along through Isaiah over the following weeks, we're going to see glimpses of Isaiah's vision of the future. It ends in chapter 66 with all nations coming into the temple uh, and a new heavens and a new earth. And so Isaiah's ministry wasn't just a turning point in history, a turning point in God's plans, uh, a wonderful turning point, but also uh, his example is a turning point in his life, a personal testimony, an example of what it's like to have a personal encounter with God. It's not normal for people to have a vision like Isaiah, and yet the big things that happen to him, the key elements of his vision, are what happened to all Christian believers today. Conviction of sin, forgiveness, and a commission to go. And so may all of us here be those who encounter God like that, respond to him like Isaiah, and go in his name. Let's pray. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken from with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Father, we thank you and praise you for your holiness, your goodness. And we acknowledge that we are ruined, but we thank you for your grace in Christ. And we pray that we may see the truth about you, see the truth about ourselves, and grasp your amazing rescue. And like Isaiah, be those who are willing to go and share it with others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.